I thought my love of books was taking me away from God. But as it turns out, books were the backwoods path back to God. Bramble-filled and broken, yes, but full of truth and wonder. Those words are from my guest today, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, thanks and uh, welcome to Outpost Theology. Thanks for having me, and you read that so well. Well, I, I, I've been practicing all morning on that, so. <laughs> well, it shows. <laughs> we have had theologians, we've had pastors, we've had Old Testament, New Testament scholars, but you are our very first uh, literature professor, so congratulations. Well, thank you. I feel I feel honored and also a little pressure here. I've got to represent. <laughs> There's no pressure. There's no pressure. Um, so a little bit on in your bio, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, PhD, is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where you're just starting this fall. Is that right? That's correct. Brand spanking new there. Brand new. She is the author of Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, that was in 2012. Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist. That was in 2014. On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. That was from Brazos in 2018. And she's the co-editor of a book uh, we're actually using, Karen, this semester in a course that I teach, which is Cultural Engagement, a Crash Course in uh, Contemporary Issues. So, uh, it's really an honor to talk with you. I've been reading your stuff for a long time, and it's it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. I am, like I said, very honored. Well, I want to I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about reading literature as a means of grace and as a means of spiritual transformation. But maybe before we get to that, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work yet. Could you give us just kind of a, a snapshot of your story, where you come from, and how you ended up um, studying literature and teaching uh, teaching literature? Sure. Well, you really captured it in, in the quote that you selected from my first book, Booked, which is the story of my growing up in a Christian family, in a Christian home, accepting Jesus when I was a very small girl, um, yet somehow not making the connection between my personal salvation and my intellectual life, which even from an early age took the form of just loving to read. I was the proverbial girl with her nose in a book all the time. And um, even though I didn't grow up in a strict family, uh, I was allowed to read what I wanted to read and we could talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. There was still this sense that I got from the church that, um, that the life of the mind and the life of books had does, doesn't have anything to do with the, with the spiritual life, the life of the church. And it felt compartmentalized to me and I felt like I had to choose between them. And for a long time, I chose books over God until I figured out um, as this, as my book talks about um, how, you know, God is the author of, he is the word and he's the author of the words that I love so much. Yeah. Well, you have this great line in booked your first, your first book in chapter 11, actually, and you, you say, I asked Jesus into my heart before I was five years old. It was many years before I asked him into my mind. And I thought, man, that's I'm, obviously that's true of your story, but I think that's probably been true for a lot of Christians and maybe a lot of evangelicals in particular. Absolutely. The need to kind of love God with our minds and not just with sort of our hearts or, or our habits or something like that. Well... 
one of the things you talk about in Booked, but also I think in, in On Reading Well, is the need to read promiscuously. And you borrow that from John Milton, I think. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> so why is reading from, and it's, first of all, it's a great just sort of provocative phrase, right? So uh, I like that. But why is reading promiscuously uh, slowly in actual books, not just on Twitter, um, across multiple genres? Why is that so important today? Well, when I wrote uh, booked in in you know in the years leading up to 2012 when it was published, um, I was teaching in a in a Christian institution. I've been um, teaching in for two decades in uh, evangelical universities. I'm starting a new job, but have been 21 years at Liberty University. And I at that time I found that you know the, within conservative evangelicalism there was a reluctance to read widely. Um, again, I, I talked about how I sensed that when I was growing up, that there, you know, we shouldn't talk about certain things or read certain things or listen to certain uh, things. And of, I mean, of course, there are limits, but <laughs> they aren't as narrow as as uh, as our subculture would have it. And so when I was working on Booked, my argument really was for Christian young people and others who might be eavesdropping on the kinds of conversations I would have in my classroom that um, that we need to follow the model of John Milton, who in 1644, as a Puritan, uh, writing to his fellow Puritans who had just come into control of the government in England over the course of many civil wars, um, that they needed, his fellow Puritans needed to not put in place a licensing act. And in making that you know, which basically we would call, you know, I mean, it's basically the foundation of what we call free speech in America. Right. Um, and he argues in this wonderful essay, Areopagitica, that, uh, that Christians need to read books widely, re read heretical works. Mm -hmm. His basic argument is that we simply, if we simply accept what we believe because we've been told this is the truth and have not weighed and wrestled with that ourselves, that that actually becomes our heresy. Right. We need to know what, not just what the truth is, but why we believe it. And we can only do that by reading uh, through books, he says, books promiscuously read, which that word originally, it just means in, in um, indiscriminate mixing. So mm -hmm. even in our reading, we can mix indiscriminately so that we can really go through an authentic process of discovering and weighing and testing the truth. Yeah. Well, I think that's excellent. And I, you know, I grew up, again, I didn't grow up in an incredibly restrictive household, but certainly an evangelical household. And it was, I suppose, in the 90s. And uh, it, it seemed like it's kind of the age of boycotts. Uh, at least it seemed, you know, we're going to boycott Disney. We're going to boycott all these different things. Harry Potter. And, yes, Harry <laughs> Potter, which, I, which I'm very heretically, you know, reading in the middle of the last book with my kids right now. Uh, it, and it seemed like in some cases, uh, it didn't just shut out bad things. It shut out really great works of literature or works of art that could have shaped uh, me and others in ways that would have been beneficial, you know? And I, so I, I appreciated that insight. And one of the things I haven't delved into these yet, but you have a series through B&H that you are uh, putting out, I, th I think the subtitle, or at least the, the phrase is a guide to reading and reflecting. And it's their classic works of literature. Is that right? 
Yes, that's correct. Um, it's actually, it will be a six volume series, which isn't a whole lot when we think of classical literature, um, but I can only do so much. And the first two just came out this uh, this spring, uh, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen and Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And they are reproductions of the texts themselves, but also I write introductions and discussion questions that are geared toward general Christian readers, you know, implementing mm. a Christian worldview, uh, but also geared toward people who perhaps have been afraid to pick up those books or didn't know where to begin. Um, and I'm kind of holding their hand in the same way that I do in my college classroom. So it's almost like taking a college class um, with, you know, on literature and classic literature. So uh, there'll be four more volumes coming out in the next couple of years. And I should say, I've, I've seen some of them. They're really, they're beautifully bound. Like, they're really beautiful books. If you care about just the feel and the aesthetic of of that, which I do, like they're, they're really, um, they're beautiful volumes. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong, Karen. I, Heart of Darkness is one of my favorite, all-time favorites. And for some reason, I, I don't get Jane Austen. I can't, I don't know what I'm, maybe you can tell me what's wrong with me, that it's, it hasn't connected or something. Well, I'm going to have to send you one of my volumes because <laughs> that's what I actually write in there is why Jane Austen is so great and why um, I explain why she's not what people seem to think that she is. She's 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 a, a brilliant um, uh, moral philosopher, uh -huh. a virtue ethicist, a uh -huh. satirist, uh, and a deep Christian. Uh, so all of those things are in in the text, and uh, they are really not love stories or romances as people think. The romance yeah. is really just sort of the vehicle for sharply critiquing and gently and lovingly critiquing society about things that we still struggle with. So, well, I will happily accept that if you all right. I will. I must say, it's been a lot of years since I tried to read Jane Austen, and I probably should. I should give her another shot that, you know, that maybe it was my own immaturity or something that just, just didn't connect at the time. So, well, don't feel bad when the, I read Pride and Prejudice in high school, I had no idea what was going on um, because her works are satirical. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a certain level of intellectual development to grasp that. And if you're reading it just in a straightforward way for the plot, um, it's uh -huh. the most boring novel that you could ever read. But once you realize that all of the meaning is in the satirical tone, then a whole world opens up. So I'm going to um, take you up on that challenge. Or <laughs> so I look forward to being uh, sort of corrected on that. That'll be that'll be good. Well, one of the I guess like all groups, evangelicals have certain buzzwords, uh, certain phrases that we use a lot, and they sometimes can become cliches. Um, in, in the circles I've run in, these have certainly been the case. One of these phrases that's become almost a cliche in recent years is the need to impact, to transform, to engage culture. We're going out to engage the culture. Um, but if you look at how evangelicals have sometimes tried to engage culture, um, at least from my limited perspective, it's often been through partisan politics or maybe somewhat simplistic apologetics um, or the marketing techniques of the business world. And I'm, I'm not against, you know, I'm certainly not against politics or savvy um, business practices or anything like that. But 
maybe one of the things that seems to have been sort of shelved, no pun intended, um, and sometimes quite literally in, in certain places is the importance of the liberal arts, um, of literature, uh, the humanities in particular, as the tools for cultural shaping and renewal. And so I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit on why are the liberal arts so important for the future of the church and the future of, of culture? Yeah, wow, there's a lot there to address. So I'll start, I'll start backwards and we'll see how much we can work our way toward the cultural engagement part that you mentioned at the beginning. And, uh, but beginning with the liberal arts, I mean, basically the liberal arts are, um, are a school um, that teaches us how to think. Mm. Um, but conservative evangelicalism, of which I am part, so I, you know, I <laughs> say that uh, with love and care, um, we are often, you know, we're mainly about what to think rather than how to think. Mm. Um, now, to be fair, that's not just conservative evangelicalism. That's really the culture, you know, that's yeah. that's modern America, the modern right. world. Um, we're very influenced by romanticism and utilitarianism and a lot of other isms that are just really about what we should think instead of how we should think. Um, and so, so evangelicalism in that sense is really just reflecting what's going on at the culture at large. But Christians more than anyone else really should be about the work of how we think, how we do anything. Christ himself is the how and the what, right? He is um, the truth in love. He is the vertical and the horizontal. It's, you know, he, he's, he's everything. And literature, for example, I'll just sort of stick to that since that's my field. Literature by its very nature is about the how and the what. So for example, um, you know, just talking about Jane Austen, um, if we are just looking at what happens in her stories, if I just sort of give you a summary of the story, it is mm -hmm. very boring. And they're all the same. All of her novels are basically the same, right? right. Um, when you talk about the what, but her real meaning is in the how. Her meaning is in the irony and the satire and the kind of correction that goes on in her tone and in her humor. And so all literature, whether it's a poem or a play or a novel, um, is uses form first in order to communicate a message. And bad art, like the kind we often see in Christian <laughs> Christian art, or even just some of the worst Hollywood films, mm -hmm. sure. um, are also about the the what the story and mm -hmm. but if you think about an excellent film that is that uses the medium of film well it's a visual feast and and we're focused on on the how and so we want to watch it over and over again in the same way that it, we can read a good book over and over again because it's not just about the what it's about the how so all of the liberal arts form us in this way of you know a, a well, they form us about the form, right? About how we're doing something, how we're how we're arriving at a conclusion, how we're thinking about something, right. um, and so the liberal arts really will save our minds and <laughs> and maybe make our world a better place. And so, I, I Christians really need to think deeply about the the role that the liberal arts have in shaping us, um, and then therefore how we you know how we engage the culture to use that cliche. Sure. Well, I love. 
I love the emphasis on how to think rather than just what to think, you know, because I, I'm a college professor as well, you know, and I, I'm training students for ministry. And, but the reality is the world is, is going to be a different place in the particulars, you know, 20 years from now than it is today. So if I'm only teaching what to think on this or that issue, it, it really won't be sufficient. And I wonder if how much of the the challenges, how many of the challenges that we face today, whether it's on social media or our ability to interpret and discern truth, is that we really haven't been schooled in how to think. You know, we've we've just been told sort of what to think by by whatever, not just evangelicals. You know, I think it's right, right, the world, right, and and that's why in, in the book uh, Cultural Engagement that I co-edited. Um, we represent a variety of views by people who, uh, you know, profess to be Christians because we're emphasizing, even though we don't agree with every single view in the book, we're emphasizing that there is a process by which a person arrives at this conclusion. Um, and we need to analyze that and examine it um, in the same way that we need to analyze our own. And so um, there's just a real lack of, Christians doing that today and, and the rest of the world. But, you know, we, we need to, to set the example, not follow the example. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm using that this semester. I'm teaching a course called Church and Culture. And, uh, and so that's one of the books that we're using. And something I think you've modeled well is the ability to engage with folks who disagree with you, but to do so with charity and with thoughtfulness rather than with caricatures. And uh, and so I just wanted to say I've appreciated, I've seen you do it online, I've seen you do it in print, and you've modeled that really well. So I appreciate well, that. Well, thank you. I, I want to give credit to all of the, the great literary works I've read over my life, which really that is an exercise in doing that. So I, th I think, you know, there's maybe some sort of uh, personality of mine that that lends itself to that, but there's also a formation that takes place when we read the kinds of, of books that require us to um, consider different perspectives and to be empathetic, even as we're not understanding. Yeah. I mean, or even as we're not agreeing. Agreeing, yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more from Karen Swallow Pryor. Hey, everybody. As you know, Outpost Theology is proud to be sponsored by Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And if you or someone you know is interested in a high-quality Christian education, but you can't come to our campus here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, we have a solution for you. It's called our Graduate and Professional Studies Program, GPS. We have bachelor's degrees in things like business administration, ministry and leadership, organizational management, psychology, and we have master's degrees in things like education, business administration, science and nursing, and strategic leadership. Just go to www.okwu.edu to find more. Well, Karen, one of the ways I, I came to know your work was through your speaking out against uh, instances of sexism, um, issues of sexual assault and what I guess I would call in some cases the good old boy culture that exists in parts of uh, American evangelicalism, but really just in parts of the culture itself. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, you don't have to, I mean, you can kind of give some of the background on that if you'd like, but I'm curious about kind of what you learned from that experience um, and the Me Too movement and all of that, you know, that's taken place um, 
for for you know it's obviously been an issue for many 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 years but this sort of cascade of attention that has come recently things you've learned from that and what it's taught you about the church about culture about sin or even maybe about the nature of god wow some big questions um yeah it's it's really been quite a process i mean i guess um I do have to say that that my church experience um, through my whole life has been really positive, both, you know, as a woman um, in every way. And uh, so not only have I felt affirmed and accepted as a woman, I've not experienced uh, the kinds of, of things that so many other women have. And I think that sort of privilege, so to speak, um, blinded me for a long time to the reality that is taking place in, in, in the church today and in my own denomination. And of course, a lot of this has been revealed um, by the power of social media, right? Where, where people can, can, who, who before, you know, didn't, their story might've been told to a few intimate friends, but would never go beyond that. Well, social media has given a platform mm-hmm. to many voices for, for good and for ill. And so um, it's really only been, I have to confess in the past few years that I've been able to connect with women whose experiences have been so different in the church and my eyes have been opened. I think I, I definitely have been naive. Um, and so when um Exactly two years ago, some uh, very ugly um, behaviors and patterns of behavior, not just just um, incidents, were revealed among um, some of the leaders in my own denomination. Um, I really felt an obligation to speak up um, and to demand accountability um, within my denomination. And so um, I had the opportunity to do that. And and I felt like I was speaking on behalf of others, um, having not really experienced this myself. And uh, so I did speak up and and accountability did come, but that was a first step. I think we're still seeing, we're seeing that that leadership that has been in place for decades has produced disciples and, you know, a generation and another generation after that of, of people who have been under that leadership and who still even, even as they profess to want to be part of the change, still can't quite see the changes that need to be made. And I think we're all kind of in that place. It's, um, you know, uh, it's uh, David Foster Wallace uh, famously talks in a, it's a uh, talked in a speech about um, at a graduation. I think it was about yeah you know, the the fish two fish swimming in a bowl and one says to the other how's the water and the other one says what water right mm-hmm. um we are swimming in this culture and we can't always see uh when we're in the midst of it and so that's what the me too and church too and even you know the um the issues of of racism the, the there are incidents that are powerful and painful but they're uh, they're helping us to open our eyes they're removing the blinders and so that has been an experience for me that has been um it is it is painful um but truth you know going back to milton um you know we want the truth right and so we need to find the truth and uh we don't want to be in denial about it 
and I guess I would just say that again, for it's, I feel like I am still in process, but what the part of the process I'm in right now is probably feeling a sense of, of loss of that innocence. Um, I've always tended to think the best of people and to give the most charitable interpretation of their actions. And I still want to do that, but I think there's a time and place to stop being so naive um, and to see that there there are some evil and wicked behaviors and um, forces that need to be opposed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish, I wish, you know, the movement towards justice and truth was a straight line. You know, it, it does seem at least from my vantage point, um, that there does that when progress is made, there's a eventually there's a backlash against that, and there's a sort of price to be paid, you know. There and um, but you, st- I I think is it correct me if I'm wrong, but for years you were very active in the pro life movement, um, and you've written about that as well. I know that's a big part of your kind of your heart. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, I've been involved in the in pro life activism for at least 30 years. I mean, I was a young woman in grad school uh, when I sort of had my awakening, I became woke to the abortion issue. Um, And it was something for me, um, you know, as a Christian, of course, it is a moral issue. All issues surrounding sexuality um, and human life are moral um, and theological issues. But it also, to me, was a justice issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, To me, it's not just a a matter of personal morality. It is a matter of social justice. And Mm -hmm. so that formed and shaped me in such a way that now I'm still just as, if not more passionate about that issue. But now that our society is grappling with another one, with two others, main ones, race and and, um, and sex abuse, uh, those habits and those, um, the thinking that shaped me as I... um, battled abortion are, are the same, you know, I'm as fired up on these issues. And to me, we, we need to protect human dignity and advance justice in every realm. And these are just the realms that are sort of bearing themselves in front of us right now. Yeah. Well, I've appreciated it. I, I, it's one thing I can't understand as someone who is a, you know, deeply passionate about racial justice, but also about the life of unborn babies, you know, that why we've sort of bifurcated and separated certain issues and put them in certain camps where you it's almost like you're not allowed to be passionate about all of those, whether it's sexism or um, and it it made me kind of think of a a line from your your book on reading well, and I'm just going to kind of turn to it too, because you talk about, and I'd never even I'd never thought about it this way, but you say both the deficiency and the excess of a virtue constitute a vice. For example, the virtue of courage is found between the excess of rashness, a vice, and the deficiency of cowardice, also a vice. And I, I'd never thought about the excess of virtue sort of veering into vice. Um, can you talk about can you talk about that a little bit and maybe even as it intersects with some of these issues that we've been highlighting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is what makes our conversation about virtue so important right now. And, and of course, this book was published in 2018, and I worked on it for two or three years before that. So, um, so it just seems like I, I was writing in the midst of 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 
these things going on in our nation where I was really having to test them and, and, and continue to test them. And so th- this is just uh, my definition of, of virtue is just drawing upon the classical, classical one um, described by Aristotle, um, where he talks about virtue being a moderation between two extremes. Um, and so I do think we tend to, we tend, tend in our culture today, you know, American, America is defined by nothing if not excess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we do tend to think, well, if something is good, like courage, more of it is better. Um, and so we, we're in the midst of, as we're in the midst of grappling with the injustices that we face, we are very vulnerable to making the, you know, in reaction, overreacting in the opposite direction and committing another vice. Um, we see this all the time with, you know, with, with uh, you know, the protests that turn into riots mm. um, or, or, you know, uh, just our attitudes about one group or one vocation. I mean, all of it needs to to be moderated. Uh, that is actually where where truth resides. Um, truth resides, you know, in kind of in the crux um, between two competing ideas. Um, yeah. So this is a time where we need virtue, literally, um, as a, a life saving me- measure, um, and one that that can, I think the only one that can put our society back on proper course. Yeah. Well, I read a quote, it was by Robespierre, Maximilian Robespierre, sort of the, you know, the shock jock of the French Revolution. And uh, and I'm probably going to mangle it, but he says, uh, what is terror other than justice, swift and severe? And of course, you know, we think of the terror of, that's, that's not justice, that's murder, you know, just sort of right. pulling people out of their houses. Right. And, but it strikes me as that kind of connects with your quote about the excess of virtue that, this, this thirst for justice can verge into a form of terror. Um, yes. you know, Walter Wink, the theologian, says that um, an excess zeal for justice almost always becomes demonic. Wow. Uh, that, that Satan is the accuser, right? The accuser right. of the saints. Right. And that's, there's this thirst for justice that can converge even into vengeance. And, right. and I feel that. I feel that, that thirst within myself. You know, I'm not immune from it. And it's so easy to 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 stray into that excess, even accidentally, in this social media culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we talk about cancel culture, and of course, that has different gradations. Um, but at its worst, it really is about a, a punishment that is that far exceeds the gravity of of the wrong. Right. Um, that may even again be done accidentally. Um, you know, I've I've found myself even in you know in in recent months realizing as my Twitter following increases that, you know, I tweeted an article about a person who did something sexually abusive that was relatively minor. Um, and that person and, and my tweet, you know, I actually, uh, a person that I know knows that person. And he told me about, you know, some of the um, very severe effects uh, on his life for something stupid that he did. And I realized, well, just by me tweeting an article, um, you know, I could contribute to to that kind of excess unwittingly. And so we just, you know, everything is so fraught. Um, it's, it's like that, um, you know, the butterfly effect, like we could just think we're flapping our wings gently and it can, we live in a culture where that can just simply set off um, a whole ripple of events um, that develop into a a tornado and we never know it. And so we need so much care and caution and virtue during this time. 
Well, and the algorithms amplify, you know, they, they reward right. that. Right. And, uh, right. Uh, the sort of principalities and powers of our technology. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like what, what a metaphor for spiritual warfare, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we don't have control over the algorithms. They're controlling us and, um, and even kind of, I think the spiritual, the spirits around us that are, uh, you know, are relishing in all of this anger and sex abuse and racism. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, we, we, we need to do all we can to, to, um, stem those forces, whether it's the algorithms or the spiritual forces around us. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's talk about social media a little bit. One of the things I've noticed is, I mean, you're active on Twitter. You're, I, I enjoy following. I don't, actually have Twitter, but I have a few people that I just check in on via my web browser. That's my, you know, <laughs> I'm resisting the pull, at least kind of. Good for but... you. You're very virtuous. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still checking. I just, I'm just refusing to download the app. So uh, I'm interested in how social media has affected our ability to read well. And even for scholars, because I'm, a, you know, look, I'm, I'm a theologian. I, um, I am involved in academic research, but I've I've noticed my own ability to read deeply has been harmed by social media. My attention span is not what it used to be. I have to do things like put my phone in another room when I sit down to read an academic article. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Do you have that problem or is it just I me? I absolutely have that problem. I'll never forget, you know, I have a a, a niece that I um doesn't live near me. I haven't I, I haven't seen her in years, you know, so we're just connected on social media. Um, but when I got my first iPhone, which has been some years now, because I, I go back so far, I had a Blackberry and a Palm Pilot before that. But when I got my first iPhone and I posted on Facebook that I had my first iPhone, she said it will change your life. Mm. And I, I had no idea what she was talking about. I, 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 I was, I remember thinking, what is she talking about? How could that's, that's silly. <laughs> well, it changed my life, right? Uh, 10, 10 years out, it's, it's changed my life. So yes. I, and of course it's so easy to bash technology and social media. Um, and, and we do need to be cautious. Um, you know, Nicholas Carr has written a book called the shallows, which has yep. many, many studies about what this, the internet is doing to our brain. It's very scary reading, scientifically backed up. Um, yet at the same time, it's also, it is a good tool. So it's a great opportunity for us to practice virtue by kind of, you know, sort of being moderate, uh, not going to either excess. Although, I, you know, more power to those who are just simply avoiding it. Um, and I think that that's good. Um, but as long as I'm in it and I, you know, I got onto Facebook and then onto Twitter really um, as an extension of my classroom. Um, I was connecting with my students and continuing discussions that we had in the classroom on those platforms. And now I feel like, well, now, you know, so the world is sort of my platform. And so I'm really not only trying to use it for good, that's really how it started out. But every day when I think about getting off, I think I get messages from people and, and thanks from people for modeling it. And so I do actually feel it is modeling, you know, using it well. Um, and so I do want to um, 
offer that kind of modeling, I guess, because, you know, when, when the novel came out in the 18th century, people were really worried about that too. Um, and so I try to remind myself, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we do have to counteract it though. We have to be intentional and, and aware of its limitations and what it's taking from us. And we have to counteract it. Do you have specific boundaries and sort of practices that you've implemented to try to help with that? Oh, I wish I could say yes. I wish I were that good. I, I, I'm still figuring it out. I really am. Um, the, the best one is the one you already mentioned, like putting that phone in the other room. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I mean, I can relate to, I obviously I, I don't have nearly the number of readers or followers that you do, but a few years ago, this was 2016, I'll just give you a little hint. I wrote an article and and it kind of took off and I, I had no background in this. And I, you know, and then I get a call from the Huffington Post that wants to repost it or whatever. And I'm sure I don't care, you know. And then for the first time in my life, I had to deal with actual just high volume of both sort of hate mail, but also like way to go, rah, rah, rah. And it seemed to me personally that it was just overwhelming and it, I lost sleep. I, I mean, it was just for my own sanity. I was like, I had, I can't handle this, you know. I, and it was this completely new experience uh, of being inundated with sort of notifications, and uh, and I thought, man, there's this is this is very uh, strange and disorienting, um, and it, it still is. I still sort of, I think I'm still working through in some way, sort of a PTSD from that. And, hmm. um, and it wasn't all bad. I mean, in some ways it was right, right. one of the better things that's ever happened in my career, but it was just disorienting. And I, and I can't imagine what that's like for people who actually, you know, go viral or, or whatever. But. No, it is. I mean, I, I just had a conversation with a, you know, a, a sort of up and coming writer who wanted some advice. And one of the things that I said to, well, what prompted the discussion is I told her that I, I, I liked my life uh, 10 years ago better than now. Mm. And she was completely, she was like, what do you mean by that? And so we had to have a long conversation and it really was, I mean, my life, you know, I'm very thankful for everything, but life, my life before social media was simpler. Um, and I know that there are many wonderful authors that I respect and writers and thinkers who just um, stay off the medium. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of jealous of them. And I know that I will probably never be able to produce as much quality work and in-depth as I could if I stayed off of social media. But again, I do feel like it's, it's a calling. Uh, it's not one I would have picked, um, but uh, it's, you know, I guess it's what I'm called to, at least for now. So it is cultural engagement, right? It is engaging, <laughs> engaging. I One of the things that's changed it for me has been the pandemic. Uh, you know, on top of issues of um, Me Too and racial justice and partisan politics, you know, we're living through this plague uh, at the time. And uh, we're recording this. It usually takes a little while for the episodes to come out, but we're recording this at the end of July. And I'm curious... Uh, like a lot of us, you've probably been kind of cooped up uh, recently. I'm curious uh, what you've been enjoying reading during the season of pandemic or how the pandemic has affected your writing, your thinking, your faith. Uh, I just ramble for a while and you can answer however you want. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's sort of been a very long summer, I guess, for, you know, as, as academics are, you know, for most of us, our semester sort of ended. I mean, it didn't end, but we got, we, we ended up being at home, you know, uh, halfway through the semester um, and finishing however we had to finish. And, um, and then summer begins. And my summers are always really just pretty much being at home and writing and reading. And so that's what I've been doing. And it hasn't been that different. I mean, I live in the country and I um, when during the summer, I try not to go anywhere. Um, I did have trips. That I was actually supposed to go to Oxford, um, a couple yeah. of other places. Um, and I, you know, I, ha I haven't really missed that. I love being home writing. Um, I mean, I, I write <laughs> more than I, I wish I had more leisure time, I guess I would <laughs> like to say, but I do. Um, I always reserve time in the summer to read just what I want to read that has nothing to do with what I'm writing or what I'm teaching. Um, so I don't know. I've read, I've read Willa Cather for the first time. Um, really enjoyed that. Read Wendell Berry's Hannah Coulter. Right now I'm reading a wonderful um, novel by an author, an Indian author whose name I won't try to pronounce, but it's the God of small things. It's uh -huh. just delightful. Um, yeah, so I I don't even know. I've just I've just been reading novel after novel while in the midst of you know writing about. I wrote my new additions to Jane Eyre and to Frankenstein, all, both of which required lots of research, even though they're books I know well. Um, you know, to introduce them to others, I have to feel like I have to read everything that's been written about them. So, yeah. well, we have that in common because I just read Hannah Coulter during the pandemic. Oh, um, and I read Jaber Crow before that, which those are my first two forays into Wendell Berry, and uh, enjoyed them a lot. Uh, enjoyed both of them, and then my wife is actually from the hometown of Willa Cather up or she's right in that it's kind of oh. obvious it's a rural area so um our family minivan had on the back of it Cather Automotive <laughs> so apparently oh, wow. Willa Cather is now uh, immortalized in a used car dealership oh. somewhere <laughs> well I felt I fell in love with her I bought a bunch more of her novels but haven't gotten to them yet but um she I I adore her now <laughs> Well, once again, if you're uh, if you're listening, we're uh, talking with Karen Swallow Pryor on literature and virtue and uh, the good life. We'll be back after a short break for just a little bit more. Hello, my name is Summer Smith. I am a junior and an English education major. And one thing that I love about Oakwoo is how many opportunities I've been granted since coming here. I love to travel and Oku has given me the opportunities to travel. Not only that, but I've been given so many opportunities to lead things on campus. So if you would like to find out more about Oklahoma Wesleyan, check us out at okwu.edu. All right, so I'm instituting a new segment on Outpost Theology, and I don't have a fancy name for it. Uh, I suppose the lightning round would be the, the sort of cliched name, but some sort of silly questions to move through really quickly. And so, uh, well, well, you don't, you know, you're, you're not on the clock or anything, but but, but there's a hint. There's a hint there. <laughs> yes, because if we move quickly, then you're more likely to say something, you know, embarrassing, and that's the goal. Oh here. yeah, so, of course. Uh, so a work of literature that is beloved by evangelicals, but you think is highly overrated. Anything by Tolkien. Anything by Tolkien. Okay. Wow. Everyone hates you now. All right. Um, <laughs> is there one by Tolkien that you particularly don't like? 
<laughs> well, I don't really read Tolkien. I mean, I'm, I'm passingly familiar with with uh, his novels. Uh, have never watched the films. Um, I appreciate everything that he he writes, but um, I don't know why Christians are so obsessed with fantasy. Enamored. Okay, gotcha. I'll, I won't get you <laughs> off track. I'll keep moving. <laughs> Desert Island scenario, which body of work do you take with you and you can choose only one? Uh, Shakespeare, John Milton, Jane Austen, Flannery O'Connor. You made it really tough. You, you've studied up on me because you made that really hard. <laughs> I, I did like, my quote research. You did? Everyone's using yes. that word yeah, now. Yeah. Um, okay, so for Desert Island, I'm, I'm honestly going to say Shakespeare because... His body of works is so large. I mean, Milton's is too, but and and also just so rich. And I feel like I could I would have to be on a desert island before I could even begin um, plumbing the depths of his the beauty of his language and you. Yeah. So I'll just say Shakespeare. Well, one of the things I get to do is audit classes for free since I'm a professor at a, and so I just audited our Shakespeare course uh, mm. a few years ago and. I promised the professor to just sit silently and I wouldn't, you know, take over the <laughs> class, but that was fun. So Shakespeare, name the best poet in this grouping. And the grouping is Bob Dylan, Dolly Parton, Bono, and Taylor Swift, the best poet. Well, I only really listen to one that's Bono, so. You're going to go with Bono? Bono, because I don't a, really. Is there a favorite U2 song? Oh goodness, that would be so hard. I love you too. I've seen them twice. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, they're a favorite one. I, um, bad. Okay, good. Yeah, good. I think I've we've seen I've seen them three times with my wife, and uh, they're one of my all-time favorites. I know that's cliche <laughs> to say as like a you know evangelical guy, but uh, name an atheist author who accidentally wrote a Christian classic. Oh, that's good. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Tur D'Urbervilles, okay. uh, one I write about in Booked. Um, Hardy would call, would have called himself an agnostic um, okay. because people weren't really claiming atheism in the 19th century very often, but um, he really, everything he wrote was against the church. Mm -hmm. um, and he's described as kind of being angry at God for not existing. Yeah, I think yeah. is really so. It's like he couldn't, you know, he everything was about God. Yeah, and the church. So it's like he did. He couldn't. He couldn't wash them out of his hair. Yeah, which shows a certain, in some ways, maybe love is not the right word, but a, a there's a he at least cares. Right. Know? Yeah. He ca he cares, and he exposes some much needed. Um, errors in in the church and Christian culture. So that's why I would consider, you know, in, in a sense, a Christian classic, um, yeah. you know, the hypocrisy uh, and uh, yeah. yeah. So. There's a line by, I think it's by Julian Barnes and it's in, I just read it in um, Jamie Smith's, uh, James K.A. Smith's uh, trilogy. And I think it's Julian Barnes who is a sort of atheistic author, writes of God, he doesn't exist, comma, the bastard. Mm. <laughs> and it, it, it kind of reminds me of Hardy. Yeah, it's like this, yeah. there's an anger over the non-existence, yeah. yeah. which almost, it almost problematizes the non-existence in a sense. Right. Right. And it, and you know, and I did write about, I mean, write about this a little bit in that last chapter of book that you quoted from some of these doubters, um, 
can teach us more about authentic faith than the most conventional platitude laden, you know, speakers and thought influencers out there. Yeah. Well, you have a quote and I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head where you, I use it as an epigraph actually in my next book, but where you say, um, certainty seemed beyond me and I can't remember the next part, but then can you finish it's from, it? For- it's, it's from, um, it's from that, it's from that chapter that I just talked about. Ah, uh, okay. So I did read it. I really did. You did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't, can I remember what I said? I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, but I know exactly what, it's that last chapter on doubt. Yeah. And the last line is wonder seemed just seemed right. Just right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that. So, yeah. okay. I'm getting away from my list. I'm sorry. Here's the, back to the lightning round. Who has to deal with more nonsense on evangelical Twitter, you or Beth Moore? Oh, poor Beth by a mile. You know, I'm just like barely even a shadow in her footsteps, but my goodness. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you both will have lots of jewels in your crowns someday just for what you have to put up with on. But I think you had this up on Twitter a while back. Well, the one I liked was your sort of uh, your moniker, uh, the no- notorious KSP, which I liked. <laughs> And then the new one I saw was, is it that you're an official weird evangelical Twitter monitor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I'm, the, I'm the monitor. I think that I've, I've uh, changed that. Sometimes I've rotated those in and out. But um, yes, when weird evangelical Twitter started, or even before it started as an official thing, I, you know, I'm kind of, I am, I can be a Karen, I will admit. <laughs> um, and so I had to rein a little bit of it in. And so um so I get, you know, I I got dubbed the evangelical Twitter monitor. Just keep trying to keep the guys, you know, within keep the line. line. Yeah, keep them in line. <laughs> yeah. I did. I do follow occasionally weird evangelical <laughs> Twitter. So, as a longtime Southern Baptist, you are longtime Southern Baptist, correct? Uh, yes. Yes. Twenty which, years. Twenty years. Which of these is scariest to you? So, and we're gonna do a shout out to weird evangelical Twitter. Uh, Russell Moore with a mullet. Wow. A pack of renegade Awanas, the theology vape boys, I don't even know what that means, but I've seen it, or being interviewed by a member of the Wesleyan Deep State, that is uh, me. Well, I they're all pretty scary, um, but I want to say for me personally, because of the way that I get trolled and accused of like, you know, being everything and everyone that I show up next to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say being interviewed on the Wesleyan deep state, right? I'm going to, you know, my Baptist brethren are going to be out there calling me apostate. They they probably will. I I just wanted to extend an invitation. If it ever gets too hot over there at the SBC, (laughs) the Wesleyans, we would love to have you. I mean, we have a history of, we've got abolitionism, you know, Orange Scott, Mm. we've Mm. got uh, a history of, you know, women's suffrage. If you ever, I don't know how this works in literature professor circles. I just know how it works in the NFL or so if if you're a free agent, you just 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 <laughs> you're come not on the over. Fir- you're not the first Wesleyan or Methodist to invite me. There's like a whole list of them and and some of them have been on podcasts as well. So we don't have any money, but you can come over and <laughs> So if you uh, if you could have coffee, tea, brunch, uh, whatever, with one figure from literary history, who would you choose? Oh yeah, I meant to think about that. Um, so I would choose Jonathan Swift. 
18th century British satirist, mm -hmm. um, Anglican minister, um, one of my favorite writers who I think is just so brilliant. Um, he's absolutely brilliant and uh, has said so much in the 18th century that applies to today. And then I'm going to reveal my ignorance because I, I, you know, I, if this were Jonathan Edwards, I'd know all about it. But. <laughs> so Jonathan Swift is most famous for his satirical essay, A Modest Proposal, in which he proposes eating uh, yes. babies, right? And also Gulliver's yes. Travels. Yes. Okay. Um, but those aren't even my favorite works by him. I mean, there's other, uh, yeah, so I, I would just, I think it would be him. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. Well, that's it. That, that That's the lightning round. Wow. Uh, is there, are there any really hard questions you want to ask me to sort of make it fair? Or is it... Um, let's see. Um, um, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you caught me off guard. Okay. So um, has your heart um, been... Mis what is it? Mysteriously Strangely warm. warm. Strangely yeah. warm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, one time I had a couple too many jalapenos and uh, oh, it was a strange warm. And huh? I almost was entirely sanctified and killed at the same moment. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah. Well, it's a John, I'm, I'm glad you weren't. <laughs> it's a John Wesley joke there for, uh, for the reformed audience out there. But, well, Karen, first of all, it's been just such a gift to have you on the podcast. And uh, what are you working on? Are you working on, aside from the B&H series with, that are kind of the classic works that you write the introductions for, are, do you have anything in the works that... Uh, those have been it. Those have consumed my sum summer. I'm just finishing up. Uh, I did finish my manuscript for Jane Eyre, finishing up the one on Frankenstein. I have a couple of um, articles in some journals that are due... Nothing, nothing too exciting. Those books are, are time consuming. So that's what I've, I've got coming out next yeah. March. And then teaching at a seminary, right? Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's where you're headed. And that's in, is that Wake Forest? Is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. uh, that is, I mean, it seems kind of uh, rare or unusual to have a literature professor at a seminary. Um, I wish it wasn't. Can you talk a little bit about what you'll be doing there? Sure. Uh, the answer is probably not as exciting in the way that you mean it, um, in the sense that actually all of the Baptist seminaries have colleges associated with them. So they actually have, there's an undergrad college, which is very small, um, but um, very um heavy on great books and um, has an English major. So I'll be teaching there, although I will be teaching um, courses on um, cultural engagement eventually in the seminary as well. So um, so basically I'm going there to teach English at the college, which is what I've you know been doing for the past couple of decades. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll continue to, to follow your work, uh, not just on weird evangelical Twitter, but uh, in print, <laughs> in print well. as well. Uh, thanks so much for. And I'll be sending you Sense and Sensibility. So Thank get, re you. get ready. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I will send you something. I, I, you know, I don't know if you read theology books, but I can reciprocate. Uh, I do. So I'll, I'll, I'll pass that along as well. And uh, Karen, thanks so much for being a guest today on Outpost Theology. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody, you did it. You made it through another episode of Outpost Theology. I want to thank our sponsor, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, my guest, Karen Swallow Pryor, the notorious KSP. And if you would like to help us out here, in addition to listening to the episodes, maybe sharing them on your social media, if you could go to wherever you download your podcasts, whether it's Apple or Spotify, wherever, and give us a nice, honest, 
five-star review. That would help us to get this out there to more folks. And we'll see you next time on Outpost Theology.